Hello, my name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia with a message for all those that are hungry and thirsty for ultimate reality, purpose, and destiny in their lives. Now, I have not given my message at the normal time this week. Normally, this message is done every Saturday, but today is Sunday, late in the evening, and I'm beginning this message at 10 o'clock in the evening. Because I was doing special video debating or rebutting what an atheist, Christopher Hitchens, was saying in a particular debate against a renowned Christian apologist, John Lennox. And I thought I'd give a totally different response as an opportunity to bring the good news to a lot of people. And indeed, there was a great reaction on that video with when I put it up there late that night, the next morning, or I think it was, no, it would have been early afternoon or whatever. When I looked at it, there was over 800 people that had looked at the video. Now, it's not continuing to accelerate at that speed, maybe because of various reasons, which I will not mention here. But that is the reason why I am late on this message and did not do a message I do not believe that also last week. So I do want to do a message now. And um, this message is for those that have come to know the one true God for whom to know is life eternal. And for those that are entirely new from maybe many different backgrounds, um, I will just here refer you to my website at ultimatemeaning.com. There, there's a flipbook with many links that are highlighted in red print that go to very amazing videos from many fields of science and archaeology that confirm the reality of what I'm talking about here. And I briefly want to describe for those that are new that might be wanting to watch this video that I am sharing with you about the one true eternal God. And there's only one quality that could be who the one true eternal God is. Obviously, the ultimate quality of the universe, actually the very source of all creation and of existence and reality. Of course, if you look at various dictionaries and, and define the word truth, it will say the truth is that which is real or reality. And if you look up the word reality or truth, or pardon me, reality or real, particularly the word reality, it's basically defined as that which is indestructible, immovable, absolute, unchangeable. And... Without going into a lot on this, there's only one quality that can be that. If you want to learn more about all of what I'm talking about here, there's far greater detail in the previous video in that debate, which is now up on my website here and on the other website at ultimatemeaning.com. But here I just want to mention that the quality of the being who is God is a quality that is the opposite of corruption. In fact, it is the destroyer of all corruption. It goes totally contrary to those that are scientific to the second law of thermodynamics, which basically says everything left on its own always goes in the direction of disorder. So if you have an organism and the head is decap decapitated, the organism quickly corrupts, obviously. This love, th this quality, this quality that is the very source of creation is an ultimate perfection of love. An ultimate perfection and manifestation of love that is the very source of love. And of course, I need to define this love. It is a quality that always chooses the highest lasting good over any lesser choice. 
innately and freely chooses it because it's not some robot or machine. It is self-originating. It is a being that has the capacity to love and always chooses the highest lasting good. This love is so pure in its integrity that as it were, it is a blazing fire of judgment against all that is contrary to love. Only this could be the source of reality because corruption obviously is that which destroys what is good, destroys what is life, destroys what is reality. But reality is life. But what's behind that reality is this ultimate perfection of love. The very meaning and meaning and purpose for all things is love. And that love is who God is. First of all, in integrity, which is the defensive aspect of the being of God's love or the holiness of his love. And it is represented in the negative symbol in math, which represents an indestructible foundation from which can spring forth creation without corruption. It represents yeah, it also the cutting off of all corruption. And it is from the negative symbol that is formed the positive symbol by crossing out the negative symbol. You get the positive symbol or the symbol of the cross. And this is the other aspect of this love. It is that there has always been as a reality in the infinite past, in the present, and will be in the infinite future, a reality in the being of God's love. That his love is so great that he could take judgment upon himself for creatures such as us that he has created as us human beings. He could take judgment upon himself for us. He could be a perfect atoning substitutionary sacrifice, absorb that judgment without being corrupted by that judgment, which is evident in the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Yes, God is so great that he can communicate on this little speck of a planet in the midst of this vast universe with his creation, and not only communicate with his creation, but he came down in the center of history through Jesus Christ, the one and only perfection of the being of God expressed into the creation realm to rule therein and experience it and communicate therein with the creation. He came down and he humbled himself more than you a mere creature on the cross and suffered more than you a mere creature on the cross so that you could choose to repent of your sins and be reconciled to God. He didn't create us as machines. He created us <coughs> with the capacity to love. He created us, therefore, as self-originating beings that make our own choices and create our own destiny. Therefore, we cannot blame God for our wrong decisions, nor God for creating the devil and other free-willed beings because we are the source of our own action, and only therein is there the capacity to love. And so in that capacity, there's the potential to make wrong choices in rebellion against this ultimate perfection of love who is God. So there's the potential to take on a hell-contagious state of being that is worse than nothingness, that is anti-life, anti-love, and therefore what is worth than nothingness is everlasting torment, being cut off from the source of love, which is the source of life and of intelligence and all there is that is good. And so the message I am telling you here is that there is no love that is greater than the love that I have just described, nor that could be imagined that is greater than the love that I've just described, which is who God is the one true eternal God. Only this love could be entrusted with unlimited life, power, and authority without being corrupted by such uh, unlimited amount of life, power, and authority. 
only this love could have unlimited life power and authority and not use it in a corrupt way. Thus indicative that he is the very source of life and of all creation and of all reality and of all that exists and was yet always before even time and out of time, always in infinite time or in the infinite past, it was always a reality in the being of God that he had this, that he was this love, not just had the capacity of this love. It was a reality in the being of God that Jesus Christ had already died on the cross and rose again from the dead even before this world was created. And it says that in the word of God, that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world or slain before the world was created. In other words, that's what it's basically saying. So I'm here to share with you the good news about the love of God that you can experience and partake of. He created us for the purpose that we would be reconciled to him through his plan to humble himself more than you a mere creature, suffer more than you a mere creature, so that you could choose to repent and cry out and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and really mean it from your heart. Cleanse me of all my sin through your blood that was shed on the cross and through your body that was broken unto death. And he rose again from the dead, and four lawyers have set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and attempt to uh, do that writing books and in the process were converted because the evidence was so overwhelming for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His death was foretold in many of the Old Testament scriptures going all the way back to over a thousand years. And it all came to pass. And before Jesus Christ came, there was the same message from the time of Adam and Eve. And that is that there is one God and that only God has the power to forgive and that we can repent and turn to that true and living God. Yes, they placed their hands on an innocent lamb and that was representing their sin being transferred onto that lamb and then it was slain. But they knew that it was not the lamb that forgave them. They knew that that could only cleanse their physical body so that God's presence could dwell near them. They knew that God was the only source of forgiveness, and that's evident from Micah chapter 6, where it makes it clear that even if we gave our own children as a sacrifice of God, it would not be sufficient to cleanse us and to cause us to be forgiven and cleansed of our sins. And so this is the good news that I share with you. And the other thing I share briefly is this, is we do not believe in three gods. There's only one God, and this one God To be almighty must rule in the three ultimate aspects of existence, which are beyond time and space as God the Father, seeing the end from the beginning, the originator, Father means originator, in creation is the Son. In Hebrews 1.3 it says that Jesus Christ is the full expression of God the Father. And yes, he, the word Son means expression and it means word and he came into this world communicate with it, to rule over it. And the third aspect of existence, so beyond creation, in creation, and the third aspect is omnipresence. That God, by his Holy Spirit, inhabits and is attached to every particle of existence that he has created and can become creative and do anything with any particle of existence. He's created in every dimension beyond the physical dimension because the physical dimension is very inferior to the fourth, the fifth, all the way up to the tenth that has been discovered by particle physics. And I don't have time to go into all of that. And in that little bit of 99.49% of everything is empty space. So you're virtually made up of nothingness. There's only a minor sub percentage that has existence in it. 
And yet in that existence, there's all these dimensions of existence, including the physical and all the ones above that, the fourth to the tenth dimension that are far superior. And of course, people have died over and over again and confirmed dead by medical equipment and doctors and have described details while they were dead of everything the doctors were saying and other people were saying and doing. It's very empirical evidence. I've written a book called Afterlife, Incredible, Irrefutable, which you can get on Amazon. It's a 368-page book of a large paperback, 6 by 9 and you can get it in digital on your phone or whatever other digital device you want to read it on. It has many links that go straight to YouTube videos. So anyhow, that's a kind of a big introduction, I know, that I always give for those that may not be aware of the truth. But this message is for the churches, those that have come together to gather around the true and the living God, who is in the Old Testament literally described as Yahweh, which means the ultimate reality, separate above and beyond creation. Yahweh, Elohim, Elohim meaning literally the Almighties, the ultimate reality, Almighties, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So for God to rule in the three ultimate aspects of existence, he must be in conscious intelligence in and over those three ultimate aspects of existence, in other words, in personage. So there's only one God, but he rules in three personages. He is in three personages. But one God, not three. So I share that with you. To clear up any misperceptions. So I want to share with you how I share these messages to those that have come to be saved and have everlasting life through receiving Jesus Christ into their lives. As the central treasure of their life and have chosen to be a love slave of God to make him their Lord and their Savior. I share these messages without hardly any preparation. The Word of God says in 1 Peter 4.11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. <coughs> and so I will seek to allow God to speak through me by his Spirit. It also says in Revelations 19.10, Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. <coughs> And when we worship God out of a pure heart and spirit and in truth with great reverence and humility, we are filled with his spirit in an overflow beyond ourselves that can result in creative utterances coming from the spirit of God beyond ourselves. And so I will seek to speak this message out of a heart and a mindset of worship, trusting God to speak by his spirit to the churches. And one of the things I do to facilitate that is I cast lots using two independent random applications on the internet to get the possibility of any chapter from the Bible. And I use two because I want two chapters that those chapters might bear witness with each other as to the common theme that I find in both of them. Then I just copy and paste a bit of verses from both of them or meditate on them a bit for a half an hour. And I preach. But of course, in this case, I'm going to just touch on a few of the passages I received this week and maybe last week. I don't know how the message will go. But before I do that message, I also cast lots to get a particular song. In this case, out of 1,080 songs, I received a song this time that is able to be played on YouTube with the words, which is always what I seek to have. So I have on my websites at loverealize.com and ultimatemeaning.com a large playlist that you can uh, use with your church. If you're connected to the internet, you just hook up the projector and have the loudspeakers and you can have these wonderful worship songs to sing, which are far greater than in meaning and depth than almost all the modern songs we have today. Um, 
There are some great modern songs too that are great, but there's many that are very shallow without very much meaning and depth in them. And this is not maybe one of my most favorite songs, and I've never heard this song myself before, but it's the one that came by the casting of Lot, and so we will worship with this song now. So I'm going to bring it up here. And I will minimize myself in a moment. song is. I just felt such a beautiful, refreshing, wholesome presence of the Holy Spirit while I was singing that song. It was so wonderful, so wonderful. And so now I just want to share with you about this song a little bit. This is something that God is going to be doing in the last days. It's fulfilling 
His purpose, his consummate purpose of history is to bring forth, <coughs> pardon me, I have been getting over probably what's influenza and there's still a tickle in my throat. <coughs> God is bringing forth a corporate bride upon the earth, which is the true church. It's not an organization. It's not a hierarchy. Hierarchy. It is a living organism that is very sensitive to the head who is God, Yahweh the Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, in whom the fullness of God dwells, as the Father and as the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. And we are living at a time when it's just a little around 500 years since the Protestant Reformation. <coughs> God is wanting to bring forth far more than <coughs> some revival that comes and goes, and they can be powerful revivals like the Welsh revival, like Azusa Street. But in this hour, he wants to bring forth something far more powerful than that. That is a, more than even a reformation. It is the restitution of all things that is talked about in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, I believe it is, where it says concerning Jesus Christ, whom the heavens must will receive until the restitution of all things. And he is about to do this mighty work. And it will be him that builds his church. And right now, there is a great shaking taking place around the world and in many people's lives as individuals because the powers of darkness are seeking to destroy humanity and I need not tell you all the corruption that are that is in high places in the educational systems and the governments of the world and the battle that we see going on look at what is happening in Israel please be in prayer for Israel for all of the shaking that is happening in that land is awakening his people they have come together, as it describes in Ezekiel, the valley of dry bones. But now they have come together. The flesh has come upon them and the body. And now the body is beginning to wake up and stand up because they're seeing that their only hope is in God. So it's waking them out of the delusion of the temporal realm into identity with the living God. As a nation, they're coming into greater unity. And the next thing that will happen as the soon before the Lord's return is that that living army will be filled with the Spirit of God and rise up and come forth. I'm not talking about a physical army. I'm talking about an army in the spiritual realm that will be also in these people that are living in Israel physically, but they will awaken into a relationship with the living God. One third of them, according to the prophecy that will happen in the last days that is described in Zechariah 12, Zechariah 13, and so on. You can check that out. It says there in, I believe, Zechariah 12, describes the Mount of Olives splitting in half as Jesus Christ returns to the earth. He stands before the Mount of Olives. Israel as a nation has been defeated militarily. They're surrounded by all these nations. And two-thirds of them are taken captive and tortured and so on. And at that point, the Lord returns and stands on the Mount of Olives. And all the people that fear God, that know God, that have connection with God, that have a relationship with God, are spared. But the presence of God goes forth and the wicked are wiped off the face of the earth as the whole planet filled with the glory of God's presence as they breathe the air, the air and them becomes like fire and devours them. And they become ashes under their feet. And there's a massive earthquake around the world. And the cities of the nations collapse. But wherever there are believers gathered around the world, the same thing that is protecting the people of God in Israel happens where there's a gathering of believers here where I am. So the buildings can fall all around them. It will not harm them. And the air will not cause them to be destroyed. 
And in case you didn't know it, there is also an earthquake fault right through the Mount of Olives. So that's some of the things that will happen just before the time of the end. And I want to now share with you what I received by the casting of Lot this week. And because of all the time I spent trying to do this other mm, uh, video on uh, a debate with an atheist and a Christian, I didn't do always a lot, so I'm just going to share a few chapters this time. So I want to bring this up now and share one of the ones, and I have received others, that may, but I think the main one I should go to is the one I received on Thursday. On Thursday, by the casting of a lot, I received Genesis 44 and 1 John 5. Now, in Genesis 44, it is the account of the sons of Jacob, as you know, Joseph was the youngest, and they were jealous of him and were very upset with him that his father gave him a special coat that they of many colors that they didn't have, <coughs> etc., etc. And it came to the point in that account there <coughs> that they tried to kill him and decided in the end to sell him to the Ishmaelites which sold him into Egypt. And of course, he went through some great trials. The word of God says in Psalms that concerning Joseph, until his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. And indeed, Joseph was greatly tried. How You can imagine how terrible he felt when he discovered that his brothers wanted to kill him and tried to kill him and then decided to sell him as a slave a terrible thing they did and then took some blood from an animal and showed Joseph's coat to their dad Jacob and said oh your son must have been killed by a wild beast and so all those years Jacob was mourning the loss of his firstborn son in the meantime Joseph is in Egypt he goes through great trials some woman that's he's, he becomes very popular with a particular man of power in Egypt and looks after all his property and then his wife tries to commit adultery with him and he flees from her and then she falsely accuses him. And so he ends up being in jail and then he becomes, um, as you know, through interpreting dreams, Pharaoh decided to make him the second in charge of all of Egypt. And so now there's a famine in the land because of the dream that Joseph interpreted to Jacob came to pass. And uh, he's second in charge of Pharaoh, second man below Pharaoh. And there is all of his family, except his dad, coming because of the famine to have corn. And, you know, and so this in Genesis 44 is where he deals with them in a very wise way and stresses them out. He sends them back to his father and says, you've got to bring the Benjamin, which wasn't alive when he was living with the family. Benjamin was the youngest. And so he says, you're not going to be, you know, getting any corn or anything else until you bring your youngest and prove to me that you're not spies, you know, the whole story. And then he brings, so they come and then he pretends, he puts them in real, he corners them to a place of great distress because he then sends them away with all the corn and everything and then calls us one of his servants to go after them and accuse them of stealing something, some golden cup or something he had. And so they say, we would never do that. And they're all stretched out. And, and they say, look at our sacks. And sure enough, it's in the sack of Benjamin. So they come back all distressed. They know that they can have their lives taken just like that. They're bowing before who they don't know is their brother, Joseph. And they're saying, well, we'll be your servants the rest of our life. And Judah said he would be willing to take the place of Benjamin if he never came back to Jacob. And so could you? So the ones that were the ones that were the worst to try and get, get Joseph killed or sold as a slave, now we're bowing before Joseph and being willing to take the place of Benjamin for the sake of their father. I won't, I'm not going into great detail. And so there they are all on their faces before Joseph, very troubled, not knowing if he's going to execute them all or what. 
And then he begins to break down in tears, Joseph. He breaks down in tears and he sends everyone out and he begins to wail and cry out and sends all his servants away and he reveals himself to his brethren. And he says, I'm Joseph, the one you sold in Egypt. And he says, God meant it for good, even though it was evil what you did to me. God allowed it to happen because he sent me ahead to prepare for this famine to save multitudes from starving to death. And so he forgives them and he embraces them all with tears and especially embraces Benjamin that wasn't partaker in this evil. And it's a very moving story to read and to watch if you ever, I don't know, I've never seen any movies on it, although there are some. But this is a type of what is going to happen to Israel in the last days as prophesied in Zechariah 12, where it says they will look upon me whom they have pierced and they will mourn like they are mourning for their only son. And believe me, those brothers of Joseph were mourning and wailing with deep regret and repentance as to what they had done to Joseph. And they so knew the greatness of God's mercy through Joseph to them. God showed his mercy to them. And no doubt at that point in their lives, there was a genuine experience of being born again of the Spirit. And I don't have time to get into that topic. But Christ expected people to know what it was to be born again of the Spirit before he died on the cross. And it is very evident, and I explain how that is a truth. It was truth from the very time of Adam and Eve, that people experienced being born again of the Spirit, although it was different before the resurrection, uh, before the death and resurrection of Christ. <clears throat> and that difference was that the Spirit could not indwell them because their soul and spirit could not be cleansed, but it could dwell he could dwell with their soul and spirit in such a state that brought forth a new nature, which I represent as this. When you're born again of the spirit, you cry out for mercy and your, your spirit no longer worships your soul in a state of pride. There's a deep turning in the heart representing it in a, the heart, the spiritual heart, turning from a fist to a hand that is open to the mercy and presence of God to receive it. And then the other hand represents the Holy Spirit. And now you've got the two symbols of a hand, uh, in hands in prayer, which now the hands can't close because they're against each other, representing the divine new nature that is now implanted by dwelling with them, as it says, for he dwelleth, ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you after the resurrection. John 14. And there in that place in the word of God in 1 John, it also says, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our, it says, whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. There has always been a remnant that has experienced spiritual rebirth from the time of Adam and Eve. Yes, as a nation, as it prophesies in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, their hearts that were like hearts of stone became as hearts of flesh, because that is speaking of when they were as a nation coming to God in the last days, which is prophesied in Zechariah chapter 12 and so on. But as a remnant there has always been those that have had a close relationship with God from the time of Adam and Eve. That's why you have Enoch that was so close with God that he was translated in the spirit and left his, his body literally translated into heaven. You've got Elijah being literally translated into heaven. You think they weren't born of a spirit if they had such a close relationship they were translated into heaven? Obviously, they did. Now, this passage that I just quoted, that this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith, is the other chapter I received by the casting of Lot today. And it emphasizes 
those that have had the revelation of who God really is, that have had the right perception of God that has caused them to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is indeed the full expression of the being of God, or in other words, the Son of God, or the very Word of God, because the word word means expression, and it does also say in the Gospel of John, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, referring to Jesus Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God, and so on. And right here, is where I want to go into 1 John now. We see in Genesis 44 that these, which were Joseph's brothers, came into genuine spiritual rebirth and revelation of God through the mercy that was extended through them to Joseph. They recognized, because they already believed in God, but they hadn't been brought to a place of true repentance and circumcision of their heart, where the state of their soul was broken open like a seed, so that the Spirit was released in their being with their soul into union with God and into true worship towards God. We cannot know or receive the mercy of God if we don't first recognize our undoneness in the light of the severity of God's judgment upon our sin, that he will not tolerate corruption in our lives, that he is holy and that his holiness is not wrong. It is right. It is fully righteous. So that we don't focus on the negative things we see in the world of suffering around us and in our own lives and say, if there's a God, why did you let this happen in my life and this happen in my life and this happen in the world? And then you're all filled with unthankfulness and having a wrong perception of God that is an idolatrous perception of God, which is what happened to Cain. That's why he thought that he could appease God by bringing his own sweat and labor as a sacrifice to God, as opposed to Abel, who recognized that he could not bring his own righteousness before God and needed his mercy in the killing of an innocent lamb that he brought before God, representing the understanding of his need to repent and receive the mercy of God and God as his source of forgiveness. So in this Gospel of John, I think it might be even better for me to read it in the actual Word of God here, if I have it up here, I think I might. It says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is brought forth anew of God, or born of God. Now, Christ means the anointed one, the one that is, which has the presence of God and is appointed of God. Jesus is, of course, speaking of Jesus Christ, and it means that God saves. It is God that saves, the one that is incarnated that saves and is appointed of God by his Spirit and has the fullness of the Spirit. Those that believe in Jesus Christ is, are born of God. And everyone that loveth him that is that begat, which is the Father, Loveth him also that is begot, loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him, which is Jesus Christ. So if we have really come to know the Father, then we will also know the Son. And Christ said that clearly. He said, Whoever has been taught of the Father shall come and knows the Father shall come to the Son. And the right knowing of the Father is the acknowledging that God is, first of all, in the integrity of his love, <clears throat> in the purity of his love, <clears throat> or in other words, the holiness of his love, never one that will condone sin, that is severe in all corruption in our lives and in the world. And yes, there's all the consequences of suffering because not that God is the source, but that we but there, there has been rebellion and sin against God. 
It goes on to say, by this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God, and we really can't love God, if we do not have great reverence for God and the genuine fear of God, which is a choice to rightly perceive God first as good in his holiness, and secondly, out of that, then only can we receive the mercy of God and be receptive to the mercy of God and perceive God thus in his love to us. And when we perceive the Father that way, when we love God, that means we will love God. So when we love God, we then will fear God and want to obey his word, his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous to keep. But if we have a wrong mindset that thinks that perceives God as some dictator that demands certain ritual sacrifices or whatever in our lives, and that somehow our performance is what God wants and not our heart and love towards God, then of course we will not know the love of God. For the love of God is that we keep his commandments, and when we have that loving relationship with God, we don't focus on the Ten Commandments as our source of righteousness. We focus on the one that gave the Ten Commandments and recognize that we're keeping those commandments out of love for the greatness of who God is in these two aspects of his being. First, the integrity of his love, which is his holiness, and the mercy of his love, which obviously is his love extended to us, the negative and the positive that I talked about. For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. So whatever is brought forth of God, and when we are brought forth of God, and we are only brought forth of God, when we have that true circumcision in our heart, that true genuine turning, of genuinely crying out and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Come into my life, cleanse me of my sin, and forgive me. And it's an ongoing process of greater and greater conversion. There are many times that we will find deception in our lives after we've been converted that we must repent of. For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith, and that word is pistis, which means moral persuasion, and obviously it means moral persuasion in who God is. We have a moral persuasion that God is totally holy, totally righteous, and only as such could he be entrusted with unlimited authority, power, and life, so that we're truly believing in who God really is, and believing that he is the ultimate source of reality. You can't genuinely believe he's the ultimate source of reality and have a perception that he's less than holy or that he's some dictator, which would mean he would be less than holy. Because that would mean he wouldn't be merciful. But God in the perfection of his integrity is ultimately expressed in that perfection and the greatness of the fact that he could take judgment upon himself for us. And so to know God has always had those two aspects of perception. So those that have really in the Old Testament known the Father have seen in the Father the revelation or the expression of the Father in the Son as King David did. King David talked about his Lord. And I don't know the verse right now. He said, the Lord said to my Lord. And I forget if it says there, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Yes, Yahweh, the Father, said to my Lord, Jesus Christ, the one that is personally communicating with me in this world, and I forget if it says thou wilt not leave it. I don't remember the rest of the verse, so I'd rather not guess at it. For whatsoever is born of God overcomes even our faith, our moral persuasion. And when you have that faith, it is represented in a new nature. Like I said, this symbol of the hand opening up like that is a symbol of faith, of your soul 
being in a state of selfless trust, not trusting in your own righteousness, but in the righteousness of God. Only then is it a state of true selflessness. Because boasting is excluded by what law? The word of God says, by the law of faith, or moral persuasion in who God is. And so when you have that, then you have the Spirit dwelling with you and a new nature that continues on with moral persuasion in who God is. And then that seed needs to be watered and nurtured. So as you receive Christ, you also walk in him into greater and greater levels of abiding, where there's reciprocation of God of the two aspects of his being. First in his holiness with great reverence and awe before God, and then in the greatness of his grace and mercy. And the true genuine fear of God is the reciprocation, the choice to reciprocate, receive God with the heart, first in the aspect of his holiness, that it is good, and not like Cain, that it's some dictatorial demand of a being that is controlling and that causes Cain to have in some measure, an unthankful heart towards God or a heart that's idolatrous in his perception of God. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the expression of God. That Jesus is the perfect, one and only expression of the being of God. That's very plainly explained in Hebrews 1.3. It says that Jesus Christ is a full expression of the Father. Yes, he is. He is the Son of God, and if he's the Son of God, he is totally God, but also totally the perfection of the being of man, the way God made him in his image. Because God is that great that he can come down and incarnate and communicate with his creation. He's not so small that he cannot do that. Some people think God would, is so, that would make God smaller. No, that means he's greater. It is obviously greater that he could do those things. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. So the Holy Spirit bears witness with the fact that Jesus Christ came by water and blood. He came into this world in human physical flesh. And not just by water only, but by water and blood. And the other way it, there is this meaning is that the word Water represents repentance and cleansing by the Word of God, the Word of God causing a repentance, and also the literal symbol of water baptism is that repentance. And the Spirit bears witness also with the need to repent and bears witness with the need that there must be cleansing from sin through sacrifice, through the shedding of blood. And so it is the Spirit that bears witness because the Spirit is truth, is reality. It is the reality. And when the Spirit is in us, it bears witness with these two aspects, that Jesus Christ came physically and that he also can cleanse us through his blood and through the convicting work of his word by his Spirit which represents the water in that way, as well as water baptism, as well as coming physically into the world. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Ghost, and the original is Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And that's obviously the word Elohim in the Hebrew, which means the Almighty's, referring to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I've explained that at the introduction in this message. And the, the, there are three that bear witness in the earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree in one. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit of God. 
and the water is water baptism, the water of the word that cleanses by convic the convicting presence that comes through the word of God that reveals to us that which must be cleansed, and the blood that is the atoning substitutionary work of Christ on the cross that cleanses from sin. And these all agree. The Spirit agrees with repentance. It agrees with the Word that is represented as water and agrees with the blood. These are in agreement. So if we receive the witness of man, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar. So if you're not perceiving God aright, and you're choosing not to believe in God as he really is and could only be to be God, you are making God a liar. And it's because you're believing not the record that God gave of his son. And if you have that wrong perception of God, you will not believe. You will say, oh, no, it couldn't be. That, that makes God too small that he would become a human being. No, he couldn't become that. He's not that great. He, no, but you're thinking he's, that he is great. But that's not so. I hope I'm not having a problem with the recording here. Shouldn't be doing that. So I just need to check in something briefly here. Sorry about that. To make sure everything is fine here. Okay, it looks like it's fine. Um, if we receive the witness of man, the witness of God is greater. Right, and we read that. He that believeth on the Son of God hath a witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he doesn't believe the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So you see the parallels between this chapter, 1 John 5, and the account of Joseph and his sons. When we're born of God, we then have the right revelation of who God is. Now, Pharaoh was revealed to his brothers, and his brothers saw that he was truly his brother. And they saw, as it were, in their brother Joseph, the mercy of God, and experienced that revelation of God in their lives. And so here we see that this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. This life is in a son, and he that hath the son hath life. He that hath not the son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name or the being, the perfection of the being. That's basically what the word name means. The being of the son of God. Because the Hebrew word for name is Shem, which is synonymous with the word for life, which is soul in the Old Testament. But Shem means who God is expressed to us in reality, whereas soul means who one is in reality to themselves. That ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. So this gives us confidence when we have this kind of moral persuasion in who God is. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. 
so we can have a confidence <coughs> when we're sensitive in our relationship with God to not be presumptuous and hasty before him as it says in Ecclesiastes let thy words be few <coughs> for God is in heaven and thou upon earth when we have a right genuine reverence and fear of God there's a sensitivity that allows us to sense when we are asking things that please God, that are according to his will, and then because we know he hears us, we know that we have the petitions that we have desired of him. But we don't ask presumptuously. We ask seeking only one thing, that which is in conformity to his purpose and his glory in our lives. So with me wanting a wife, I can ask for a wife, and I am believing for one. But God may have put me through many trials in my life to purify me before he allows me to have that wife. But I must be brought to the place where I ask out of a pure heart not to consume these things on my own lusts. Not that it is wrong to experience pleasure and want physical pleasures that God has given us to enjoy, but that they must be submitted to him and under the control, and therefore they must be learned to be bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Jesus Christ. And I could go on and on with this message. It's pretty long to go through this passage of Scripture. But I cannot continue on for time because I believe this message has been going on for a long time. But I will briefly just read through this. It says, if any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he should pray for that. And we know there's examples. In the New Testament of those that were to be delivered, one that was to be delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. But thank God, he came to repentance and was restored. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. But here's the thing. We know that whoever is born of God doesn't sin in the sense of habitual. We all, it would contradict First John itself if it was saying that we don't sin at all. Because at the beginning of First John, it makes it very clear. Whoever says he does not have sin is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This is talking about those that are habitually addicted to sin with no conviction to repent of it and justified and continue in it. But we repent and we may fall many times because there are those sins that so easily beset us. But we get up again. It says, though a righteous man falls seven times, yet will he rise. And we genuinely repent with a determination not to do it. And we ask God for grace and to take away those desires is what we should be asking for, to help our mind not to go into those places. And he will help us. And he will cause us to overcome. Maybe after we've sinned seven times or so, but God forbid that we would ever have a motive to think, though we can just keep sinning and God will forgive us. Such a motive would be terrible and evil and totally contrary to the will of God. It must be that there is genuine fear of God to truly repent and bring forth the fruits of repentance. He that is begotten of God keeps himself, and that wicked one cannot touch him because he doesn't allow sin to be in his life. He keeps his garments clean. When you go through trials, there's things that you can panic and get upset about and commit sin. But it says in, of those that have gone through great tribulation that they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We are not to allow sin in our lives. When there's a spot that comes on our garment, we must repent of it. And we know that we are of God and that the whole world lieth in wickedness. We know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, 
and we are in him that is true, even in his son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. So keep yourself from having an idol, idolatrous perception of God and from all things that would justify sin in your life that would therefore bring you into the idol of whatever you are focusing on for temporal pleasure and fulfillment over your relationship with God. Thank you for listening to this message. It is what God is saying at this time that he wants in the body of Christ. For us to be in that revelation of Jesus Christ that keeps us from sinning. The more we have the revelation in our heart of Jesus Christ, beholding as in a face the glory of the Lord, we are changed into the same image from glory to glory. But we must have the open heart, the heart that is open to God, to his reproof, to his correction, a heart that's always repenting whenever we sense things that we've done that are displeasing to God. He's calling his church to walk in purity, to walk in the revelation of who Jesus Christ is, that it would shine out of us to others, not only by the lives we live, but also by the emanation of his presence where there's a savor of life unto life unto those that he's drawing onto life. Thank you for listening to this message and God bless you all.